to come up to the podium when you're moved by the singing. It's, it's kind of hard because, see, you don't know what I'm going to preach. You know about what I'm going to preach, Matthew 7, 13 through 29. We just read it a little bit ago, but you don't know what I'm going to say. And I always leave room within a sermon to add some things. Uh, that's why I go along. Um, but I will say that uh, it is well. I, I hope that as you gather here this morning, it is well with your soul. I hope that you can have confidence in your relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're a guest with us this morning, I want to just thank you for coming today. And, and uh, we don't assume that our guests don't know Jesus, all right? Actually, it's the complete opposite. We don't presume that all those who are here every week know Jesus. So we preach faithfully the Word of God, and, and uh, we do the best we can. I'm thankful for Joe last week for the, his excellent treatment of the text prior to this one, the beginning of chapter 7. But it is a, it is a humbling thing to come up week after week and, and preach God's Word. And to, to know that it matters. It matters what I say, how I apply his word. If you're new with us, if you're visiting us for the first time, we've been going through the, the gospel of Matthew uh, section by section, and we today will come to the conclusion of one of the greatest portions of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and uh, we know Jesus is the greatest preacher of all time. And here in his first major discourse within the book of Matthew, he doesn't end it on a, uh, just like a touchy-feely, let's all go home and sing kumbaya mood. He finishes it off kind of like in our face. And, and if you were paying attention to the reading of God's Word just a few minutes ago, it's, it's pretty stark stuff that, that Jesus is talking about today. So whether you were here for the first time or you've lived your entire life here, which may not be long for some people, uh, or maybe you've been here for decades, maybe you've been here for, I know there are people in the room that have been here for 41 years, the, the whole duration of this, this church life. So as, as we go into here, I want, you, I want to put your focus, your mind and focus on sobering truth. Sobering truth, and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm going to explain it all in just a second, but I, I like to just give you a second. What, what does sobering truth mean to you? A truth that sobers, and we're not talking about alcohol, we're not talking about anything like that, we're just talking about the reality of truth and, and what it does to you. And I ask you, have you in, ever had an encounter with a sobering truth in your life? And what I mean by that is the idea when that truth hit you, you changed. You were going through some aspect of life, and, and we all have, we all have individual lives. None of us have the same life experience as everyone else in the room. We can share moments of experience, but when they come, when you culminate them all together, we're all unique. We're all different. And so we've all had different times in our lives, and maybe a, a young person hasn't necessarily been confronted with a sobering truth. They wouldn't have known to say that. But for the, for the teenagers and above, I would be fairly confident that when you've encountered a truth that changed you, that's what I'm talking about. Have you ever encountered that level of truth where it had such an impact on your life? So I came up with a few different areas of where a sobering truth may hit, where it may have hit you. I know I, this, a few of these are true of me. I'm not going to share my whole life story, but I have my financial uh, truth, you know, a sobering truth. Uh, money doesn't go as far as you like. Money in a invested in a home doesn't always, isn't always there when you sell the home. Um, I've been laid off, uh, let go from, from a place of business, right? I mean, I, it was on my birthday, right? Um, I've had relationships that have gone bad, both romantic, prior to Christine, all right, uh, and friendships that have just gone the way that you don't want friendships to go. Health, family, education, all, those, all these areas 
you may have encountered some sobering truth where you realize life doesn't always deliver what it promises in these areas. There's been a difficult time in one of these areas and, and some sort of truth. And I'm not, you fill in the blank. I don't know your story. But I want to focus on this one we call religion. And I'm calling it religion today and not faith because I believe all mankind has religion. An atheist religion is their belief that there is not a God. Religion has some connection with God. We would say we're Christians, so our, our relationship and our faith in, in God is through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his one and only son, who died on that cross for our sins, not his own. That's where our faith is. But there are people who have faith in, in other things, in other, other uh, so-called deities, in other uh, uh, aspects of life, you, you name it. The world is full of various religions. There are even religions who profess Jesus, but it's a different Jesus than what we find in Scripture. And so when we talk about religion, I want to focus in today and just say, have you ever had a sobering truth confront you in the area of religion? In the area, now I'll transition to the area of faith. Here's the question. Is it sobering to consider that your children, your child, parent, sibling, friend, or relative might be going to hell. Welcome to Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. All right. If you're new with us, that may, might seem like, what am I in for? You're in for the word of God. That's what I'm hoping. This is the, as, as we consider the impact of this section, 13 through 29 of chapter 7, this is the part that just arrests our attention. The section that talks about the fact that people are going to spend eternity in hell. Now, we use that terminology. It's not as I found in the text, but we're going to walk through it. But I want you to consider this morning. Have you considered the reality that your child may be destined for hell? That your parent may be destined for hell? Your sibling. All these are just, they meet us right where we live. The eternal significance of faith in Christ is on center display today. Our friends, our relatives, all, this, all these people might be going to hell. The truth is, and this is, this is truth, is some people who have considered themselves Christians at the end of their life will experience the judgment of God. Now, I just shared a moment ago that Jeannie... Uh, went home to be with the Lord. And I talked about the confidence that we can have. And I think she is, as well as the, the many who have preceded her in death over the last two years or so, um, you know, they are many. There's just, just these wonderful illustrations of what we're talking about today. But there are people who have considered them. That word considered is very important because we're not talking about people who are genuine faith. We're not talking about people who have come to a, a genuine faith in Christ. We're talking about people who have considered themselves Christians. They have gone to a Christian, air quotes, church. They, have, they, have, they own a Christian Bible. They, they have sung Christian songs, they have, they have done any number of things that people in the world have called Christian, but at the end of their life, they will experience the judgment of God. And I'm sorry that if that doesn't hit you right between the eyes, I don't know what will. Because we come here week after week after week, month after month, year after year. Rejoicing the salvation that we legitimately have in Christ. But yet, as I mentioned, I cannot presume that just because you're here, you're a Christian. If you're here this morning, you may consider yourself a Christian, and it may not be true. That's sobering. The text of Scripture begins in Matthew 7, 20. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the words of Jesus. 
There are going to people, be people who say, Lord, Lord, and, and they're going to get to enter the kingdom. But there are those who are going to say, Lord, Lord, and they, shall, they, they, will, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We have been talking about the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is talking about how to live life in, in uh, uh, pursuing that kingdom and living in the, in the knowledge of that kingdom and the faith. Because the king is here, and we have placed our faith in the son uh, who is the king, you know, we, we believe that we're citizens of the kingdom. It's already uh, in, in, in the world in the sense of in, in all believers, right? Because Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom in this world. But we won't fully realize it until the day of judgment, until the day when all things are brought to conclusion. Time and space will conclude. God will go on. Uh, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, but there's coming this judgment day. And on that day, not everyone who says to Jesus, by the way, don't miss that. Jesus is standing there talking to hundreds, potentially thousands of people. And he's saying, me, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not just some prophet. He's not just some come uh, uh, the, the next guy to come across the scene and, and maybe he'll bring us victory over Rome. He is making a declaration of eternity. He's saying, I'm different, and Jesus is different. He says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. The truth is, some people who have participated in mighty spiritual acts will experience the judgment of God. This is one way of saying, don't allow your religious experiences to be the the aspect or, or, the, or the things that you look to for confidence in your faith. Because as we read in this text, it says, Many will say to me, Jesus, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Ha uh, cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. Jesus, again, this is the, the culmination of one of the most powerful sermons ever. And, and he's bringing the focus upon himself. He's been talking about how we learned the Beatitudes. And we learned that we have to have a, a, a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. And, and Jesus is now culminating this messages and, and his message and says, listen, look to me. We know from elsewhere he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He says, many will say to me in that coming day of judgment... Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many wonderful things in your name? And what does Jesus say? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. These are the harshest words in Scripture. Um, I say that often. I mean, I'm sure, I'm just saying, it's not harsh. That's not the right word. The most sobering words in Scripture to me. Because I was this person. I was the one trusting in my upbringing and my, uh, my religiosity and, and the, the fact that I went to church and I went to, uh, I was part of the right church organization and, 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 and I was this person and most of you were too. But the sobering truth of the gospel comes in and it just has a way of changing us. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you've never been changed by the gospel, if you've never come to the realization that your sin that has not been forgiven will send you to an eternity in separation from God, and we call that hell. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I didn't, he doesn't say, I knew you for a bit, but then you, you sinned again and you fell away. He doesn't say that. He says, I never knew you. And then even stronger words, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Depart. This is the, this is the great white throne judgment. This is, this is people are, are standing and, and, and God is uh, opening the books of life. And, and we, we get there. If you're not written in the book of life, you're, you're going to hear these words. Our loved ones are going to hear these words. Our children, our parents, whoever it might be, 
are going to hear these words if they've never come to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. It is a sobering truth that people you and I know will someday go to hell. And I'll just pause for a minute and ask you, does that, does that do anything inside you? I ask you to consider, do you, are there names that come into your mind when you think of someone who's, who you know right now who's going to go to hell? I have loved ones that do not know Christ. I have parents who were very religious and, and, and brought us to church and we prayed together and we did all kinds of religious things. And, and I'm, not pre, I'm not presupposing their eternal salvation or their eternal destiny in hell. I'm not, presuppose, I'm, not, I'm not saying one way or the other. That's between God and them. And I had to come to grips with that. But I have friends and I have family that I believe one day are going to hell. And that saddens me, but it also gives me purpose in life. It's the same purpose you share as believers. If there's a name coming to, on, on your mind and in your heart right now, I'm going to pause and we're going to pray for those folks. Father, I thank you for your word. There's still so much more to go through in this particular passage of scripture, but Father, we start off focusing on on what you focused on, right smack dab in the middle of the end of, of the Sermon on the Mount, you declare that the stakes are eternal. That there will be those who have been deceived, whether by others or self-deceived in some way, and they will enter into eternity thinking that somehow they have made it when they have not. They trusted in something else besides Jesus Christ. Father, for the names that have come into our minds, we pray, Father, that you would draw our loved ones to yourself. Lord, we have great love for many people. And yet to know that there's a possibility they may be spending eternity in hell, Lord, we know we can't affect that change in their life. But we can ask you to. Father, your will be done in their lives. And Father, no matter what takes place in our, the lives of our loved ones, we know you are holy, you are righteous, you are loving, you are merciful, you are gracious. But Father, we pray for the salvation of souls for our loved ones. But Father, we go beyond that. There are people that we don't even know right now who are on their way to hell. And we live in a world, of Christ, a Christian-influenced world that is so focused on what we do in our particular denomination or what we can, uh, how we can affect change in our community, uh, our church community, how we can build bigger buildings, we can, we can uh, compete with different churches, and we can do, and, and our, our, our focus is taken off of what we're supposed to be focused on, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the churches that exist in our area. Thank you for the gospel going forth this day in this community all around us. Father, thank you for the gospel that's going forth all over the world through those that you have called to serve you. I pray, Father, that we would respond to your call as well. And recognize that the truth that people are going to hell all around us means that we have a purpose that we are called to fulfill. And we know we can only do it in your strength. We pray that you give us that passion, that drive to see others come to faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Not only professing non-believers, but professing Christians will hear Jesus' words of condemnation. That's really... 
the, the, the central focus of that little section of, of this last part. But professing does not make it true. And, that's, and that's, that's what we need to understand as we go to churches where, and, and by the way, you know I don't do an altar call at the end of the service. I don't always call people forward. This is part of that reason. I believe that people are drawn to God through his working, through the power of the Holy Spirit, convicting people of sin. And yes, I believe in the preaching of God's word. God can do that. But in our circles, as recent history in the last few hundred years would say, people have responded to altar calls. They've come down and they've said the words. They've prayed the prayer. But they didn't do it in faith. And what have churches like ours and others throughout the, 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 the last few hundred years done, we have led people to believe that there is a way to come to God aside from faith. We have been involved in the deception of, of people to think if they pray a prayer, they're saved when they don't have an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. And you can't necessarily get all that done in one sermon every week, week after week after week. You can't possibly to bring people from a, an absolute ignorance of Jesus to a, a faithful understanding of who he is every week. But in the culmination of weeks, and in the passion that we, have, we bring to the pulpit to say, please come to faith in Jesus Christ. I encourage you, there have been people here in the last few weeks, praise God, there are people that have come in the last few weeks, in the last month or so, that don't know Jesus. And we get to talk about Jesus. And they are challenged with their understanding of who he is. And we can try and get a notch in our belt by, by leading them in a prayer right then and there. But if they don't have faith, when it comes to the end, they'll say, Lord, Lord, he said, I never knew you. Let us be people committed to bringing people to a knowledge of Jesus, to a, a, a change of life that would enable them to live a life that glorifies God and not just a momentary decision that literally isn't even a decision. It's an act of religion. Folks, listen. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to come to know Jesus. We would love to, to sit down and walk you through Scripture and help you understand that. But you probably have more questions than this sermon can answer. What this sermon is hopefully trying to do is to get you to understand that it's important for you to come to faith in Jesus Christ today. Or as soon as you are able to come to faith. And who Jesus is, the Son of God, the only Son of God who died on the cross, and he's the only one, the innocent for the guilty. He died in your place. Professing that you're a Christian doesn't make it true. So here's the question. How can I be confident that I will not hear these words of condemnation from Jesus? I, I think this is what really is pressuring us this morning as we go forward. So I think you can have confident uh, you can be confident of your salvation, and we're going to walk through the text, and, and, but we're going to start back in 13. And we're going to say, if you entered God's kingdom by the narrow gate of Jesus Christ, then you can have confidence in, in your salvation if you've legitimately done this. Look at the text. It says, enter by the narrow gate. Now, here's some terminology that, that uh, we don't fully understand necessarily. I mean, Jesus is talking to a bunch of agricultural people and shepherd people, and, and he's saying, enter the narrow gate. It's the only command in the text, in this text that we're looking at. He's saying, this is a command. This is something you are called to do. Enter the narrow gate. It's a command given by Jesus that we have to consider, have, have you obeyed the command? I have. But I don't think I knew it was a command until after I had been saved for a little bit and was studying Scripture, right? I didn't know what a narrow gate was back then. But I do now. Jesus taught this same truth in John 10, 7 through 14. He says, then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. 
the legitimate sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The, the, the beauty here is that we see Jesus uses a similar terminology. Uh, he, I'm going to define the narrow gate as Jesus, right? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But he's saying, listen, whether it's a gate or a door, the imagery is the same. Only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Christianity is a restricted faith. And I, I didn't know if the right word was restricted or restrictive but I'm just saying there is only one way to the Father. That's what, I'm, that's what I believe Scripture teaches. That's what we profess as, as Christians, as we profess as Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. Christianity is a restricted faith. You can only believe in one Savior. You can only believe in one way to heaven. If you, I, I, I'm not throwing up the coexist bumper sticker on there, but you know what that's saying. Many roads lead to God. No. No. Every one of those other symbols beside the cross are false ways. They do not lead you to eternal life. They are part of what we're going to learn about here. He says, uh, in oh, uh, another place that we see, it says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we... Uh, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way. Jesus said to him, most these are also very famous words in Scripture, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. Christianity is exclusive. It's, it is in only one, and, and, and that is probably a very common knowledge to most of you. But does that truth make a difference in your life? It should make a difference if you don't know Christ, because I'm telling you right now, if you're trusting in something else other than Christ, you're on your way to hell. But what about believers? Is this truth making a difference in your life that there's, there's no other way? But you are the light if you've come to faith in Christ. You, you possess, and, and you, you're, we're supposed to live out our faith where others see it and rejoice and are drawn to the Father. To have salvation, we must enter through the narrow gate. That's what the text is saying. But what is the alternative to the narrow gate? And that's really where uh, uh, Jesus jumps to. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. And we're going to see this contrast between uh, the, the narrow gate and the wide gate, the, the uh, broad way and the difficult way. We're going we're to see this unfold, but we're first told here that there is this alternative to the narrow gate, and it's the wide gate. The wide gate and broad way do not have signs directing people to destruction. It's, it's where it leads, Right? Jesus says very clearly, it's wide, it's open, it's easy to travel. It, it, it's, it, it's not the same as the, the narrow one. You know, it's, it, there's difficulty associated with the narrow one. But there's no sign saying that, oh, by the way, come through this wide gate, enjoy this broad path, because ultimately it's leading to destruction. Satan doesn't tell you that. And that's why the world all around us believes in many ways to God. They promise good things, but they cannot deliver. I, I think this is important for us to consider. As we consider the wide, broad, uh, the wide gate and the broad road that leads to destruction, who's the one that tells us about it? Not Satan. Not the world. It's a merciful, loving, gracious God reveals to us the truth about the coming destruction. Maybe you didn't know about the destruction that you're headed for this morning. Maybe someone will watch this online a year from now and, and they'll say, oh, what is this? Oh, this looks, oh, this is a sermon on the mount. This is good. Destruction. That destruction is talking about this eternal damnation is really what it's at. He says, uh, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go into it. But he also reveals the path to life. He goes on, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Narrow gate, wide gate. Broad path, difficult path. Many will go, few will go. Throughout this entire text, there's this play on the number two. And it's saying in, in every important way, there's only one way. 
that you can go. There's only one, one way, one name to choose and to follow, and that's Jesus Christ. So as we consider this, this narrow gate that we've passed through, and now we're on this path that's called difficult, why is it difficult? If you come to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, you've gone through the narrow gate. You didn't trust in anything else for your salvation. You're not trusting in your good works or your pedigree or, or, or anything else. You recognize as you came to the cross of Christ, you recognized I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. We, we just sang about it. In multiple songs, we sang about our sins being forgiven. Our sin, not in part, but the whole. Nailed to the cross. Jesus died to pay for all sins of all time, of all people. But it is effective for those who have faith. And once we enter that narrow gate, realizing I, I have to shed everything and walk through there in faith alone, by grace alone, when you walk through that narrow gate, you're on a difficult path. This is also a false teaching that's out there. Somehow when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, life is easy. According to this text, nope. The Christian life is difficult. So what does it mean that this path is difficult? Well, one, I think because walking in kingdom righteousness is what Jesus has been talking about, a greater righteousness than the Pharisees, is rejected by the world. We're living counterculturally. They are mocking us, making fun of us, and making our life difficult to practice our faith and to live out a faith that glorifies God because they think we're foolish. They think we're insane. It's because following Jesus means rejecting the appetites of the flesh. This church has a long history of not allowing itself to be in bondage to debt. I love that heritage that this church has. It's very rare. There are certainly other churches that have that, but I love that. But what about you? What role does debt play in your life? Because following Jesus means rejecting the appetites of the flesh. Did you, did you, did you put yourself under the bondage of finding out for houses? I get it, folks. But do you really need a car that's worth $60,000? If you've got the finances to handle it, you're fine. I'm talking about people who buy mansions and then don't have enough money to put furniture in it for two people. I'm talking about the, the exorbitant expenditure of, of resources for things that have no eternal significance. But they make us look right in this world. It gets us the right friends, the right jobs, the right prestige, whatever. No, no. The difficult path we are called to live is rejecting the appetites of the flesh because we have to understand there are people dying and going to hell. And yes, there are people in our nation and throughout the world who are starving and do not have enough money to survive. I'm not saying that if you have money that you can't spend it the way you wish, right? But you are accountable to God as everyone else is. I'm just saying, listen, why is the path difficult? Because we are going contrary to the way the world says we ought to go. That's just one illustration when it comes to money. Why is the path difficult? Because having a greater faith requires a singular commitment to Jesus. And, and, and I think this is what Jesus is drawing these people to a conclusion with. He's saying the Sermon on the Mount. He says, listen, all this stuff is true. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the, are the peacekeepers, right? Blessed are all these people. And he goes on and talks about righteousness, but he, he's finishing up here and he's bringing the center focus. He says, folks, look at me. Because if you don't have a right understanding of who I am and a right faith in who I am, then you will hear from me, depart from me you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is the narrow gate. The few who enter the gate walk in a difficult path, but it leads to life. And, and so we can look at that. I do think in the context we are talking about an, an eschatological, a future-oriented life in the sense of this, is, this, this road, this path that we're on is, is leading us to a place that we call life. And that's eternal life. That's life without sin, that's the life in the presence of God. But I don't think it, 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 it says that we can't experience that life now. 
right? There's, there's an aspect of this that I'll bring in later where, listen, this makes a difference now. Jesus is talking to people listening to him, and he's saying, listen, walk the difficult path. It leads to life because it, there is life in Christ. We don't have to wait till we're died to, to, till we have died to experience the, the joy of our salvation. We get to experience that now, every day. But Satan offers a wide gate. The many who enter the gate walk a comfortable path which leads to destruction. That word, the words there, wide and broad, are, are uh, the idea of maybe easy or comfortable. And I'm thinking, uh, some of you might be thinking, I should say, that well, what does it mean? I mean, I, I, there are people that work hard. Uh, there's a lot of people on their way to hell that have difficult lives, yes. But what we're talking about is people will come to a faith that says, I'm going to follow God the way I choose to. I'm comfortable with coexist. I'm comfortable with, with uh, uh, the, the belief that somehow well, I'll have a second chance once, I'm, once I get to go, once I die. That there are, uh, I will say, cult positions that believe that you'll have a second chance after death. There is only one life, and after that, it's the judgment. And, and we, have to, we, we will be accounted uh, in front of God for what we have done in this life. He says, but Satan, listen, he offers a counterfeit. That's what people do. That's what he does. So have you entered the kingdom of God by the narrow gate? That is certainly the question before us this morning. That's one of the questions I want to ask you to. But, but I want you to bring you to a second idea. You can be confident in your salvation if you have entered God's kingdom by the narrow gate of Jesus Christ. If that's taken place, take confidence in that. But you can take more confidence in the fact that if your spiritual gift your spiritual fruit, excuse me, gives evidence of relationship with Jesus? That's another way of knowing, hey, I, this, my, I am seeing fruit in my life. God is doing a work in me and through me, and I see this fruit. But we're introduced to the, to the, the bad fruit first before we're told about any, having any good fruit. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly there are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. I'm just going to pause right there for a moment. So notice this. There are false prophets. Somehow there are people uh, that Jesus is warning his disciples and those would-be disciples, saying, listen, be careful of those who are saying, hey, God has said something when he hasn't. Don't follow the people that are going to lead you on the wide and broad way. You need to be focused on the true word of God. Don't listen to the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but... They are inwardly ravenous wolves. This kind of goes back, and, uh, back to the section that we were dealing with when, when Jesus was saying it's not the outward appearance that matters. It's what's going on inside. He's saying it's not only true for Christians, but it's true of the lost. It's true of these people. Inwardly, they are ravenous. They are never satisfied. They will cause destruction. They will bring pain for their own benefit, for their own purpose. They do not have you in mind. They are not looking out for your good. He says, beware of these people. Stay away, for, stay away from them. They will come to you and they will look like Satan. Right? Satan can, can appear as an angel of light. And in my personal opinion, he's done that and has deceived millions. More to that in private conversation. But I will say, he's done it. Scripture tells us that, that he's done it. But those who follow him and are deceived by him, they do the same thing. They look the part. They, they are in our gatherings. Maybe not this one, maybe this one, but they are in certainly the Big C Church. There are people out there, and they are uh, outwardly, they look like fellow sheep. But inwardly, they are ravenous. He says, you will know them by their fruits. So we're, we're, he goes on. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? The obvious answer is no. Ridiculous. You don't, you don't get fruit from those things. So secondly, we're introduced to those who bear good fruit. He, he goes on to say, even so, every good tree bears good fruit. This is common sense for us in an age where we understand science and we understand how all these things happen. Here we see it very clearly. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. It's common sense in an agricultural world. 
And so what we are being told here is that there are trees that are bearing good fruit. They're not given names like the, the false prophets, but they're, the false prophets are in contrast to someone. It says you're going to know the false prophets by their fruit, but it's not just false prophets. There are other bad trees and good trees. And this is that, that again, as you think about the two ways, do you want to be a bad tree that bears bad fruit? No. But if you're a bad tree, which means you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot bear the fruit of righteousness. It's impossible. Only good trees in this, in this picture, only good trees are the ones who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Good fruit is necessary for a Christian to have confidence in their salvation. This is where I think part of the, where the rubber meets the road for people that call themselves Christians. I can't judge your heart. You need to go home. You need, well, you need to do it right now, to be honest with you. Consider yourself, what, are, are, you, are you of the faith? Are you, are you, did you walk through that narrow gate? Because, listen, if you did, your life is producing good fruit because you're, you're the tree is, is Jesus, right? I am the vine. You are the branches. No one can do anything apart from me, right? Jesus is saying, listen, it's exclusive. It's all about Jesus. And if you're a, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you have been producing good fruit in some fashion. Look for it. Nurture it. Try to exercise more. Try to, to, try to do more. And, and, but I'm just telling you, it, 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 it's a sobering truth. Another sobering truth for us to wrestle with as Christians is we're supposed to be in the fruit-producing business. We're supposed to be living out our faith so that, that we are producing fruit. And fruit is not necessarily just seeing others come to faith in Jesus Christ. Good fruit would be growing in our faith, maturing in our faith maturing in our, our understanding of who Jesus is and how he wants to work in us and through us in our lives. So good fruit, if you see it, praise God. Never be content with it. Keep producing that fruit, right? Walk the walk of faith, that, that narrow gate that led to the difficult road. And while you're on that difficult road, you are supposed to be producing fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. See, he says it again. By, we, we, this, the, the expression or the, the production of fruit in our lives is an indicator of what our spiritual condition is. But if our spiritual condition is we're a bad tree bearing bad fruit, it gets cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a reference to eternal judgment. The stakes are high, folks. The stakes are high. If you can be confident, you can be confident in your salvation if you enter the narrow gate and if you, the spiritual fruit gives, uh, if you see that spiritual fruit in your life, then, and, and that's why even as I, I talked about Jeannie, it was so obvious. I, I've spent many moments with her through the years I've been here and it's just, it's always about Jesus, right? She's always, she was just exuding that. And, and, and so many of the other folks, it's a joy to do a funeral when you know the person, you just have confidence. Now, I, ultimately, it's between God and that person. But we're able to see fruit, and I see fruit in so many of these lives, and so it's, it's a joy that we can have confidence in that way. You can be confident of your salvation if you are hearing the words of Jesus and doing the will of the Father. So uh, this is, we see this first in Matthew 7, uh, 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That's where we started. But then he says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The idea of not everyone gets to go in, but these are the people who get to go in to the kingdom of heaven. Those who do the will of Jesus' Father. Now, for Jesus to call God his Father was not a common thing in this day, right? He is, he is referring to God as his Father in a way that was kind of surprising to those who have been listening to him. He's claiming a relationship that is uh, different than what the, the scribes and Pharisees would have claimed uh, the way Jesus does it. He's saying, listen, listen, the, the one who is going to enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who will do. There is action involved. There is commitment involved. Do the will of my Father in heaven. 
And we, we know the rest of the text, but later on it says in verse 24, it says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, Jesus is saying this, and does them. It goes back to, to James, right? Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Where do you think James got that from, right? Well, here we have Jesus preaching it in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And we can sing the little kid's song, right? I'm not going to, but we could, all right? And we could get Aaron up here and lead us in, you know, in, in that song. But listen, wise people build their house on the rock of Jesus Christ. He is the narrow gate. He is the rock. He's the foundation, all right? And when the rains descend and the floods come and the winds blow and they beat on that house, it will not fall. You want to have confidence in your faith. If you have persevered through difficult times in this life, imagine the truth of God as it presented here. You know that the way you've persevered in this life is because of what Jesus Christ is doing in and through you. We, we have the testimonies. They, we could have a testimony service right now where people say, yeah, I saw God. He preserved me through this. He saved me from this. And, and oh, yeah, that was the hand of God in my life. Yeah, well, those are indicators that if he's keeping his promise in this life, imagine that he's able to keep it in the next. Wise, wise men still seek him is often the saying at Christmas time. But wise men seek him every day. Because as we consider this, it is wise for you to put your faith completely in Jesus Christ. That word, again, complete, is important. This is the only way to persevere in this life and be guaranteed life eternal. It's only through Jesus, only through Jesus, only through Jesus. So whatever you are trusting in, other than Jesus, you need to get rid of that in your life. You need to repent of your sin. You need to repent of following something else besides the Son of God. Our life, our faith is supposed to be completely. There's no compartmentalizing of life. Don't you dare shut off the gospel into the most sensitive areas of your life, the most difficult areas of your life, the most joyous areas of your life. The gospel should invade every part of that because God has redeemed all of you, as in the whole person. I don't know if he's redeemed all of you. I don't know. But you ought to be asking that question. It is foolish for you to put your faith in the things of this world. This way only leads to eternal destruction. It's the gospel plain and clear. Faith in Christ, life. Faith in anything else. Eternal damnation, destruction. He concludes, uh, um, uh, not conclusion yet, but he says, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, here's the other side, right? The, so you have two foundations. You have the rock foundation or the sand foundation. He says, them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. All these things happened and it fell. And great was the fall of it. In other words, it's, it's not just, oh, that's so sad. It's like, no, it's eternal. Great was the fall of it. It's catastrophic to a life. It is, is it sobering to consider that your child, parent, sibling, friend, or relative might be going to hell? I, I think that is the sobering question that I started with, and, and, and I think it's something that we can consider. But is it sobering to consider that you might be going to hell? Because that's, that's what got me. In my religiosity, Am I trusting of the right family and the right church and the right economic level in our society? I thought I was good until someone confronted me with my sin. And that my sin was not atoned for on the cross of Christ because I had never entered, the, I never went through the narrow gate. I was happy to be where I was. So is it sobering to consider that you might be going to hell? I hope it is. And I hope you'll repent and I hope you'll come to faith. Because how are you going to respond to this sobering truth depends on you. Not the rest of us. Not even God. It depends on you. The invitation is clear. The command is clear. Enter the narrow gate. He concludes here, it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. 
For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Authority we'll talk about more, especially when we get to the end of the book. But Jesus has the authority. But he's saying here, these people who had been listening, not just the disciples, but the crowd that was out there, they were listening and they were astonished. But being astonished is not the same as coming to faith. You ever had a wow moment about Jesus? But did you come to faith in him? Yeah, oh, that great story. Oh, Jesus confounded those people. That was really cool. Oh, the intellectual uh, expertise and, and, the, and the, his abilities and debate. Oh, my word, that's wonderful. Did you come to faith? That's what he was confronting those people with. Jesus is different from everyone else and anything else that you can put your trust in. So the, the reality is you are trusting in something. Everyone has a religion. But will your trust, whatever you're trusting it, will it give you life? Because Jesus gives life to all who believe in him. And we invite you to come to faith in Jesus and receive life now and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your great gospel, your amazing grace. Father, as we sang, is it, it, it is well prior to this sermon. As we think about that individual who penned those words, what fruit he manifested when he put those words down and put in our language the, the, the severity of the gospel, how it, how it just invades everything and changes everything. At the loss of his children, he can say it is well. Father, I pray that it is well for those in this room and watching us online, but only you know. And those that are having questions, Father, I pray that you would draw them to your word, a deep reading of your word, a repetitive reading of your word, so that the Holy Spirit can do his work in their lives directly. But Father, maybe you'd use the words of this preacher or use the words of someone in the, in the chairs today after the service to answer the prayers, to answer the questions, excuse me, of those who are not sure of their faith in Christ. I'm going to say a name and her, her husband is here in the room, but it's a memory I have and it, I think it applies. Mona Radford shared Christ after a sermon with a woman who on, on the outward appearance looked like she had been going to church her whole life. But afterwards, Mona recognized there's some questioning going on in that person's heart. So she had the courage to ask that person if she knew Jesus as her Savior. And she said she didn't. And Mona gave the gospel to her and we saw another child of God born. If there's someone here today that does not know Christ as their Savior, be born again. Experience a, a spiritual rebirth that will produce in your life, life for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.